Hello. Um, it's been a week or maybe more since I've done a Facebook Live video. I've been traveling. I was in Minnesota for a week, uh, seeing some friends, uh, hanging out, doing an event there. Uh, one of my building on fire events. And uh, so I was, I was planning on doing a, a Facebook Live when I was there uh, with my friend Jay, but it never happened. We were just having too much fun. So sorry about that. And then you kind of get out of the way of things. But I'm back. I've got my morning coffee. It's another roasting day in LA. It's Friday. Um, so I don't know how many of you are going to be able to actually watch this live. Um, I'm sure lots of you have real jobs and are not wasters like me. Um, but uh, there's definitely a few people have, have clicked in where we've got about 30 people. Um, this morning I thought I would as I usually do, give a few thoughts on some topic and then, you know, have a chance to hear from you and, uh, you know, it'll all take around 30 minutes if that's fine. Feel free, write your comments, your questions, your thoughts, just say hi. Oh, there's Dean from South Africa. Wow, there's people from all over. Jeff says hi. Um, yeah, Gabrielle says real office jobs. Yes. Um, I know it's not morning everywhere in the world, but if you're in America, you're likely in some office somewhere. Um, so today I thought I would talk about God, which, you know, I know I'm kind of a philosopher and a theologian and I spend my life talking about these issues, but you may notice that I you know, don't talk about God very much. Um, uh, in fact, you know, the kind of theology that I explore is very much interested in what you can't say about God. Um, and it's very about embracing the material world, etc, etc. But um, I thought I would do at least one Facebook Live, maybe actually do a series of Facebook Lives on the question of God. And the way that I phrase the title of this, you'll notice it's you know, what goes on in the name of God, which is something that John Caputo has said uh, in some of his books, like The Weakness of God, is, you know, instead of saying, you know, what is God or who is God, uh, a question we can ask is, you know, what gets done in that name, what is housed in that name, uh, what what is happening to those who use that name, who feel that they are caught up in something uh, that they use that name for. So what what gets done in the name of God? And I want to uh, use uh, uh, something from the the psychoanalyst Lacan to try to clarify this so it's going to be a bit of an academic one this morning um, get your coffees uh, and um, uh, buckle up or go away and watch something more fun like kitten videos or something like that but for a bit of theory you're in the right spot. Uh, Lacan uh, famously said that we as human beings are caught up in three simultaneous realities. Three registers that make up our experience of ourselves as a subject. Now this is similar to what Freud said. Most of you will know there's the id, the ego and the superego is a way that Freud thought about um, the human subject. Uh, the id is this bubbling place of desire. The ego is broadly our sense of self, who we are. Um, it's our kind of idealized Facebook version of ourselves that we carry around. And our superego is kind of this authority voice that is within us um, that kind of tells us 
what we should and shouldn't be doing. That's a terrible description, but I'm just using it as a background, the id, the ego, and the superego. Uh, well, Lacan had a similar kind of framework, and he called it the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. And I'm just going to do an overview of this. I think you'll find this interesting, actually, uh, regardless of what I'm going to do with it theologically. Uh, you'll probably resonate with some of it because these registers are there all the time in our lives. When we fall in love, when we uh, hang out with our friends, uh, when we're on our own, these three registers are operating. So the first is the imaginary. And the imaginary is basically think of the term image. It comes from the idea of the image. And in a previous Facebook Live, I talked about how using Adam Phillips, we all lead double lives. We all lead at least double lives the lives we live and our unlived lives. And I talked about how our first experience of this happens when we are frustrated in our youth. Uh, literally, for some of us, whenever we are not close to our mother, when we're not close to our mother's breast, it's the first time potentially that we feel dissatisfied and going, crap, um, I'm hungry and I'm cold and what's going on, right? Um, that is a very early experience of, of, of creating a separation between what you have and what you would like to have, right? Very early on, there's what you have or don't have and what you would like to have. And as we grow up, uh, these continue to exist. So we have worlds that we live in and worlds that we would like to live in. So maybe you are in an office job at the moment and you dream of you know, winning the lottery and uh, living in Barbados. I don't know what your dream is, but we as human beings live between these worlds. We don't live in the lived world. We don't live in the unlived world. In a sense, we live in the space between these. So if you wanna know more about that, check out uh, my last or a couple of Facebook Lives ago, I talked about it. But something else happens when we're really young that I don't think I did mention. And it's it's, the point when you look in a mirror, uh, symbolically or literally, and you begin to see somebody who has their life together. So basically, as an, as an infant, you're a bit crap, to be honest, right? You're falling over all the time, you're crying, you have these experiences in your body, like explosions that you don't even have names for, like hunger, pain, fear, this, this chaos of existence. And there's a point when someone says, oh, you're brave, you're strong, you're smart. Uh, you know, look at you, you can stand up. Look at you, you can walk across the room. Wow. And maybe you're held in front of a mirror. Look, look at you, look how amazing you are. And this is great, right? But what happens at this point is at a very, very subtle level, we begin to construct an image of ourselves that doesn't quite match our internal reality. So we begin to construct something that exists between who we are and who we would like to be. And just like we have the lived life and the unlived life, and we live somewhere in the middle of that, there is who we are and who we would like to be. And we live somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, as we grow, we continue to have these images of ourselves um, you know, if you think about it, I, I'm always scruffy, um, so this doesn't happen too often. But you know, if you if you you know look good one night, you go out, you're, you're you've got makeup on, or you're well dressed, and uh, and all of that, and you catch yourself in the mirror, uh, you you can often be fascinated by that. 
You know, there's a sense of literally looking in a mirror or looking in a car a window when you're walking past, when you're looking good. And, you know, people, you, people think, oh, this, you know, it's pure narcissism. You know, you're just interested in your own image. And in a sense, you are. But often because your own internal experience is different from the person you see in the mirror. So maybe you're on a date and you go to the bathroom and, you know, you, you look in the mirror and you're feeling inside anxiety. You're feeling like, is this going well? Am I presenting myself well? There's, there's fears and there's, there's chaos inside. But you look in the mirror and what do you see? Well, you see someone who looks beautiful or looks well made up or looks, looks like they've got it all together. And you kind of go, that's me. This is great. This is working. This is okay. And seeing the mirror image kind of helps you deal with the chaos. So you might be on your way to a party. And again, your social anxiety, you just wish you'd stayed in and watched TV, you're nervous that no one will talk to you, um, all of this stuff. But you know, you look at yourself in the mirror and if, if you're looking good and you've really put an effort in or whatever, that can make you go, well, I'm presenting myself as someone who is sociable, who is fun, who has it together. And so you see how we kind of live in this, in this middle space between the image and the self. Now in love, the imaginary plays a role. Now it's dangerous when it plays too big a role. Uh, in the imaginary, this is where we fall in love with people who are basically flattering images of ourselves. Uh, we're really attracted to people who think like us, who act like us, who reflect something of, of, of who we think we are, like in a really good way. And, and so in a relationship, you might end up having arguments because you disagree on something politically and it gets really chaotic. Now, that's kind of the level of the imaginary in a little bit, because often we want the other who we love to reflect back our views on ourselves and kind of tell us that our views are right. We may have doubts or deep down on, on our unconscious about our political or religious views, but when the person we love says that they believe it, it kind of helps us feel more confident. It kind of allays some of the anxiety. Uh, of course, the problem is if, if our love is very much based on the imaginary, then our love is, is very much based on our idealized image of ourselves and we don't really connect with the other. We make them into a type of fantasy object flattering version of ourselves. So that's something that we see in daily life. Um, when we hang out with, when we make friends with people, we're often make friends with those people who agree with us. We're at a party and, you know, I, I mention, oh, I really hate such and such a TV program. And the person beside me says, oh, God, so do I. And I'm like, seriously? And then you talk and, and you realize that you agree on lots of things and you get really excited. And that's totally fine. But, you know, in many respects, this is about you kind of meeting a version of yourself. Uh, and then it gets awkward if suddenly you kind of like disagree on something and you kind of brush over that. Right. That's that's part of life. Then there is the sorry, the symbolic. The symbolic describes something that um, grounds the imaginary, something, something that's a little bit harder to conceptualize. The symbolic is basically the frame within which you look at the world. And, and the frame that helps you judge who is pure and who is impure, who is a terrorist, who is a freedom fighter, uh, who is good and who is bad. Uh, you're, you're, the symbolic is the frame that you use to look at everything in the world. Um, you're kind of like going about things, you see things in a certain way, 
the symbolic is is what frames that and you're you're often not aware of it you just know what's yuck and what's good you just know who's right and who's wrong what political party is good and what political party is bad uh, that is this symbolic structure that grounds you and grounds your world of meaning is a guarantee that your world is meaningful and it so it not just it doesn't just frame your world it colors your world like like wearing glasses that you see the world through now in again in relationships Sometimes we fall in love with some, with people who are symbolic figures for us. Uh, you'll notice uh, people who are married often, who have kids, often refer to their partner as their mummy or their daddy. Now, of course, that's sometimes because their kid is there. Oh, what does mummy want? What does daddy want? But then you'll also see it often the kid isn't even around and they'll talk about mummy and daddy. Uh, or a child puts their hand up in school and says mummy instead of you know, Mrs. Hamilton or whatever it is, right? Um, these are sometimes where you see the symbolic just leak out. That we often are attracted to people who are stand-ins for our symbolic world. They're kind of like uh, reflections of authority figures from our past that have helped us shape and see the world. And again, this isn't bad or good in and of itself. It's, it's not healthy if that's the only reason why you're going out with somebody is because you're making them into a mother or a father for you. Um, you know, sometimes you'll see uh, an example would be, you know, someone who's obsessive. Often they're sexually attracted to people until they really get close to the person. And then the other becomes a, uh, like a, a mother figure. So their desire lose it gets lost i don't know if i don't know well that's true of, of a lot of obsessives is they they can only be attracted to the other who is um reducible to an object uh, as soon as they get close to the subjectivity of the other they lose their sexual desire and of course that's a, a problem if you're obsessive because you want to you want to love and desire um at the same time that's actually a real problem for many people is that love and desire don't often mesh. You can love someone and desire someone, but strangely, when you start loving the person you desire, uh, um, then the desire goes. Or if you start desiring the one you love, the love goes, right? Um, these are human problems. But sorry, but what I was saying um, uh, probably isn't correct about the obsessive that they turn someone into their mother, but often in relationships, like mafia bosses, you can say, you know, the, the stereotypical example is, you know, you know, they, they have, they go out and sleep with prostitutes, but, you know, they go like, I would never, I'd never treat my wife like that, you know, that's the, those are the lips that she kisses my son with, you know, in other words, the, the, the wife becomes a type of mother figure. Uh, you know, and this happens as well. Alternatively, so somebody might want to go out with someone much older who's like a father figure um, to them, etc., etc. So, this is the symbolic. And again, it's not all bad, but it's it's bad if if your relationships are purely on the symbolic realm. And then the most interesting of the three is the real, and the real is also the most difficult to understand. But at a simple level, the real is that which enters our world, which disrupts the symbolic and disrupts the imaginary. The real is that which blows everything up, right? It, it breaks the frame, breaks the glasses that we're wearing, um, dis disrupts who we think is good and who we think is bad, 
who we think is a terrorist and who we think is, you know, the 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 the, the, the person who's allowed to kill. You know, these whatever the, the 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 who's right, the who's wrong, the systems that we have in place. The real is that which disturbs that. It doesn't necessarily break it down completely, but it disturbs, it relativizes, it makes us have to think, oh, maybe these are historical ideas and I have to think critically about them. Um, so the real enters our world at different times. It might be very simply, you know, you think uh, having money, a job and a relationship, you know, is, is the best. And if you don't have a relationship, it's probably because you're like, you know, sad. And if you don't have a job, it's because you're lazy. If you don't have savings, it's because, you know, you're not able to, to take discipline and responsibility for your life, right? There's your frame. You just think it. But then you lose your job, there's a recession. Um, the bank takes your house back. Uh, you lose your partner through all of the stress of what's going on. This can be uh, our, uh, an invasion of the real because now you're going, oh, just having a job doesn't mean that, you know, not having a job doesn't mean you're lazy. You cannot have a job because things have gone really badly, um, not through any fault of your own. And sometimes you can be single because, you know, you, if your relationship wasn't successful, it's not because you didn't try hard enough. You realize, oh my goodness, you know, sometimes life gets in the way, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of ruptures your whole world of meaning. Um, and sometimes we just replace one structure with, with another. So that's the, these three things. The imaginary, which is idealized, flattering images of ourselves that we put onto other people that reflect us. The symbolic, the underlying structure by which we understand the world, uh, the, the frame, and the real, that which erupts and breaks into that causes us to rethink um, the very coordinates of our existence. Oh, and by the way, I mentioned love and the other two. What does love and the real mean? That's the most crazy type of love. <laughs> That's the most kind of like a fun type of love and destructive type of love. That creates Bonnie and Clyde and um, Abelard and Eloise and, and whatever. Um, it's the type of love that where you break family traditions, you cross religious and political boundaries, uh, where like in Northern Ireland, Catholics and Protestants marry. Uh, it during the troubles whenever that was like you know a death sentence you know you had to leave if you were in certain areas you have to leave the country um, that just ruptures everything you think you know and um, uh, is very intoxicating and you know whatever and, and love at its best has all three elements of those built hard baked into it what does this mean in relation to theology God or whatever well, at a basic level, when we use the word God, we often unknowingly create a bigger, better version of ourselves, a flattering version of ourselves. This is like in folk religion where God is just like, in the same way in LA, you can tell what people are like by looking at their dogs, right? Is it a small, cute dog? Is it a big, butch dog? Is it kind of well-groomed? Is it shaggy? You know, the, your dog tells you about the personality of the person who owns the dog in many ways. So people's gods tell you about their own values, their own ideas of themselves, etc, etc. This is what was beautifully critiqued in the 19th century by Feuerbach, Marx, Freud and Nietzsche. When you read them, they are the ones who basically say so much religion, so much of what goes on in that name is projection, is just basically 
a flattering image of the community itself writ large. And of course, there's a lot of truth to that. That's why even very conservative um, theologians like Karl Barth uh, really loved Feuerbach because he felt that he basically critiqued liberal theology, said liberal theology is just projection. It's, it's at the level of the imaginary. But of course, fundamentalist theology you can think of as well as operating at the level of the imaginary. Then there is, of course, the symbolic. So theologically, what does that look like? Well, that's whenever that's more like philosophical theology or analytic philosophy. You see this idea that God is what guarantees meaning. God is the what um, I think it was. Um, I can't remember. I think it was Descartes talked about God as the guarantor of meaning. Well, Descartes definitely did talk like that. I don't know if he was the you know the primary person, but God is the guarantor of the a meaningful universe that operates in a certain way. And whenever God is taken in a symbolic sense. Uh, and it's most crude, that means, you know, God blesses our tanks and our army and, uh, you know, blesses us. We're, we're the ones who are right. The way we look at the world is correct. And, you know, God is the justification for the fact that there is a meaningful universe and that, you know, we can participate in that meaning and that, you know, our side is ultimately right. Um, although you can think of symbolic systems where uh, you'd be more self-critical, but ultimately, uh, if we think of God and religion as that which guarantees our way of life, um, our protection, our, uh, our values, um, then that is God operating and being thought of primarily in the symbolic, uh, you know, the symbolic uh, regime. Uh, now, a lot of religion happens in those spaces and a lot of religion can seem to be mostly at the symbolic or mostly at the imaginary. But, uh, you know, within, I think, probably all religions, but I'm going to talk about Judaism a little bit and maybe Christianity, because that's the tradition, those are the traditions I know more about. Um, there is this idea that God is not projection, but uh, what Caputo says is a projectile. God is not projection, but a projectile. In other words, <clears throat> the name God is also used to describe the event in which we are ruptured. Our ideas of what is right and what is wrong, who is good and who is bad, are broken open to new possibilities. Our worlds are destabilized. Um, the reified kind of worlds that we have are melted, become molten, so that they can flow in new directions. And <clears throat> so you see this obviously with the unnameable name of God in, in Exodus. You cannot name me, I am that I am. You know, you can't even say the name God. You see this with God who comes in and is 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 um, uh, kind of like throwing our human understandings, you know, to the wind. This is this in theology is probably called, you know, it's the dialectic tradition, dialectical theology. Um, in, in theology, again, it's quite conservative in some elements. But Karl Barth, the Karl Barth that I like, which is the early Barth, um, you know, he says that when God enters the world, God comes in as that which blows up our views of what religion is and what good and bad is. God is a no to our yes. That's a dialectic, the opposite. You know, we create our regimes and something comes in and smashes those regimes. And, you know, Bart in his early days is, is expressing this idea that, that all, all our religious and political ideologies um, 
are, are, are relativized and problematized by the name of God, the event of God. Um, so I don't know how long I've been on because Facebook have changed their thing and it's not telling me, but I'm guessing I've been rabbiting on for a good 20 minutes. So we'll just sum up and have a look, see if you've made any comments or questions. That when we use the word God, um, I think that we simultaneously use all three of those. So there is a sense in which, of course, if I use the word God, it will reflect something of my own self, my own being um, at its best. As Feuerbach would say, you know, we take our, like our, you know, our fragmented problematic selves and, and there's something about idealizing certain elements of that. So the word God becomes sometimes a way of saying something about my ideals and my values. Also, the word God reflects something of an authority that grounds my world that I tend to, if I use the word God, but it might not be God, it might be you know, ideology, politics, whatever, culture, um, you know, the absolute, whatever you want to call it. But, but without thinking, there is this underlying structure, the way I look at the world. And, and if I use the word God, God is often used in that way. However, within the, you know, the Christian tradition that I'm part of and other traditions as well, there is this sense in which God has to also be understood as the real. And the real is that which ruptures the symbolic and the imaginary, breaks us open a new possibility, shows that our way of looking at the world isn't divinely justified, um, but is created in history and can cause oppressions and violence. So this is why, and we may explore this in a future Facebook Live, you can say God is always in the oppressed other, because the oppressed other, if we listen to them, is the one who ruptures our systems of right and wrong. We live in a just system. We live in a system where good triumphs over evil, where if you're innocent, you'll be treated well. You know, if you're guilty, then you've got something to fear from the authorities. That's completely sensible. And then you encounter the other who's oppressed by your system and you're like, oh, shit, that's not true. It's not true that if you're innocent, you're going to be treated well. If you're guilty, you'll be treated badly. There's a system where actually you can be innocent and be shot. You know, there's a system where you can be innocent and put in prison. There are people who have done nothing wrong and are harassed. And so the other is the real. The other exposes to you something maybe in your system that you were blind to, that, um, but you, that you participate in. And in many ways, I want to say that that is the primary purpose of the name God at its best. Of course, it will have imaginary elements. Of course, it will have symbolic elements. But what we really need to concentrate on in these tumultuous times um, are, are be wary of discourses where God is used to justify the status quo, to justify our, our bigger, better versions of our own values. Um, and try to recover what's called the prophetic tradition. The prophetic tradition being that no that breaks into all of our yeses. <laughs> that, 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 that cannonball that smashes into all of our systems. Not so that we are destroyed, but so that new possibilities open up. New horizons become possible. New futures become real things that we can work towards. Okay. 
let's have a little look at what you've been saying. Um, a lot of hellos. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, let's see. I'm just scrolling. Let's see. Okay, Bryce. I know Bryce. Uh, if morality exists within the okay, you're going to ask a technical question, but let's go. If morality exists within a symbolic register, so yeah. So what Bryce is saying is, you know, our morality, who he thinks, you know, pure, impure, good, bad, right, wrong, is you know at the symbolic level. Uh, it would not would it would naturally follow that it doesn't exist in the real. No, question mark. What are the implications of this on the validity of moral relativism or strict fundamentalism? So, okay, so if in a sense the real breaks open our moral categories, our moral frameworks, yeah, Bryce is asking, you know, what are the implications for this? Does that mean we're all moral relativists? Um, uh, you know, or, and is the only alternative to that fundamentalism? Um, like very briefly, I just, I'll, yeah, Bryce, thanks for the question. This is where I'm really interested in. Uh, something Tillich said, where he goes that, so, you know, you know, you'll, somebody said this to me recently at a talk I did, but they said, there's a, there's a lot of um, churches where you kind of go, you go like, we can be open about these questions and these things, but there are certain doctrines and dogmas that you need to be, you know, cold tightly, right? And if you're in, if you're in a very conservative church, there might be 10% that you can question, 90% you have to hold tightly. Or if you're in a really liberal church, it might be 90% you can be open to and 10% you hold tightly. And you can conceive of a community that goes 99% you can question and 1% you have to hold tightly. See, otherwise you're just a relativist, right? Well, Tillich says, no, 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 no. He says, simultaneously, you 100% have everything open, but there is an absolute that lies within that. <laughs> There's my hand analogy for Tillich, right? That will one day be in a book. Um, and what he means by this is, he, uh, if Levinas says the same, he says, the absolute is that the other says, do not murder me. This, if when you treat a subject, a person as an object to use and abuse, you are by, by definition, reducing them from being a complex subject to a mere thing. Right? So Tillich says the moral absolute is that the other must be treated as a subject. So when you meet another, you need to treat them as infinitely valuable subject. Right? So that's the absolute. However, how you do that is sadly we have to take responsibility for yourself. Like you, There is no tradition that will 100% tell you what the right thing to do is. Now there are traditions that are you know make it they they help us make moral decisions. There's there's lots of ways that we can do that. But whenever we go to see like a, a heart, we read our horoscopes or see a psychic or whatever, often that is our attempt to not take responsibility for our actions. We want someone else to tell us. It's a it's a kind of weird form of hypnosis. We want another to kind of get into our head and help us do you know, tell us exactly what to do. Um, and that's running away from what Sartre called our condemnation to freedom, that we have to take responsibility for our actions. So when you read Tillich, you go, well, well so the real rupture is our moral framework, but, but it doesn't rupture the idea that the other is a subject that we have to love completely and absolutely. So church then becomes a place where you enter in 
And you might be Republican or Democrat or whatever, right? But in that place, you cultivate a sensitivity to the unique subjectivity of the other. And then when you leave that place, of course you need political and religious views and you fight that out. But you fight it out sharing in common the idea that the other has singular value. That does not mean that you will politically agree on what the solutions are. You have to fight that out, make your case, and if you're lucky or unlucky enough, what you say will get done. And then you have to take responsibility for whether that worked or whether that was a disaster. <laughs> um, you can't put it onto something else. But what you agree on is we are fighting to make the world a more beautiful place for life and subjectivity. So that's, that's what I would say to that, if that makes sense, Bryce. Um, let's see, let's go. Melissa. Um, oh yeah, I used to, let's see what you say. Melissa. Uh, oh yeah, I'm sorry, there's, you're having a conversation with Bryce, so I'll jump in and see if I can, if what you're saying here is something I can contribute to as well. I see, Mr. Bryce, I have a very different I, I have very different ideas where the symbolic and the imaginary are real planes that we just can't observe physically with our eyes. Oh, you're talking to Bryce. Um, uh, things that we observe and explore through our minds or hearts, the mind being on a different plane than the heart dimension, if you will. Okay, I'd need to go back and look at what else you were saying, but glad you guys are chatting. Um, oh, yeah, Seth says, can you tie this into a stroke theism? So I've used this term, which I've kind of borrowed from people like Derrida and Caputo, where you write atheism with a slash between the A and the T. So there's this kind of move between theism and atheism. And yet you, you can say basically that theism is this is, involves certain beliefs about there being a God and what type of God that is, right? Every theism has an atheism. A philosopher, uh, uh, Jean-Luc Marion, is very good on this. He says that there's no such thing as like, uh, you know, in the same way, there's, if, you, if you say I'm a theist, you go, well, what God do you believe in? Atheism also um, is regional. If you're, someone's an atheist, you say, what God do you not believe in? Because the, atheism is always the rejection of a theism, right? There's, there's a certain view of God and there's a certain rejection of God. So theism and atheism are intertwined in this way. Um, so when I write, so theism is often like the structural thing. It's our beliefs, our ideas, and then atheism is the critique of that. And what I'm, what I argue in some of my books, and start arguing in how not to speak of God, is that the Christian, in a sense, is an a-stroke theist because the symbolic and the imaginary kind of operate in the theism side, and the real operates on the atheism side, and this clash is where the most interesting stuff happens, basically in the slash between theism and atheism. This is why in so many ways I have been critiquing the divide between atheism and theism. That's why Atheism for Lent explores the complex and beautiful love affair, tumultuous love affair that has really existed between atheism and theism that you don't see on a popular level. The, this is one of the most beautiful love stories you'll ever read. It's got violence and, 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 and affairs and, 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 and passion and like, you know, like any crazy relationship where, where one moment they're shouting at each other and the next moment they're in a passionate embrace. That's the relationship between atheism and theism. And I, I believe that that is the space that we 
need to live, that Christianity lives. Just in the way that I said that human beings live in the space between the lived life and the unlived life, there is a sense in which we live in the space between theism and atheism. And, and the real is what allows us to do that. Um, oh, hey Kathleen. Uh, hey Pete. Would you say the dialectic view equals apophatic? Um, apophaticism um, is definitely a form of dialectic uh, theology. There's there's a few different forms. So not so it's kind of like the uh, you know the Venn diagrams. You know all apophatic theology is dialectic, but not all dialectic theology is um, uh, apophatic. Um, now you know if I thought about that, I might disagree with myself. There might be a form of apophatic theology that's not. But apophatic theology usually you know says you know, this is who we think God is, and and God is bigger, better, different than that. So there is the yes and the no, the yes and the no, and these exist in this in this tumultuous relationship that ultimately gives birth to a third, which dialectic theology always has a third, uh, which is a, a different way of being that's beyond the, 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 the opposites. Um, I'll just maybe do one more because I don't want to bore you too much. Mind you, you can stop and then come back. Um, you can do a toilet break, whatever you need to do. Uh, um, okay, yeah, I'll finish with Brent, um, Brent Robbins, who asks, where does the liturgical element of religion fit into this theoretical framework? I love this is this is this is what I love. This is what I'm into. That I believe in um, liturgy, which means I believe in kind of that we we need to have rituals that, in a sense, draw us into the things that we're talking about here. We all have rituals. You know, we go we go to hear musicians, comedians, storytellers. We we create rituals in our family lives. Um, the issue is. Uh, can you create a set of rituals that bring in the real? So there's two types. Let's be simple about it. You've got a liturgy. Uh, you know, every week you go to church and you sing certain songs, maybe take communion, I don't know, whatever you do, right? Does that, at its worst, you can engage weekly in a community that solidifies the symbolic and the imaginary? It keeps giving you God as a bigger, better, more flattering version than yourself and as the structure that guarantees that you're right, that God thinks the way you think, or of course it's said as in God, you think the way God thinks. And so all the rituals um, are designed, or most of the rituals are designed to solidify God as the symbolic and the imaginary. That's deeply problematic. But you can create a liturgical structure that involves God coming in as the projectile, breaking up the symbolic and the imaginary. This is what I did with decentering practices. Every decentering practice I set up, and there's four of them, um, and uh, the evangelism project, I'll just talk about that for a second, was a liturgical practice designed to help us encounter the other so that we will be ruptured. So we go to a community to be evangelized by them. And as most of you will know if you followed my work, the idea is not that you go to the Islamic society and go, right, well, you know, convert us to Islam. Uh, you know, you hear what they believe and, and you, you know, you might be persuaded, you might not, but that's, that's not where the evangelism happens. It's at the point when you say, what is it like to be a Muslim in Belfast? 
What is it like to encounter the Christian community that I'm a part of? And then you see yourself through their eyes and you begin to, your view ruptures. You realize that maybe that you're part of a system that creates pollution, that your way of looking at the world is actually doing violence to the other. And so the evangelism happens because your symbolic world is, is ruptured through an encounter with the other. So that means creating liturgical structures where the, the say for example, the other, whoever the other is, is heard is given platform and given voice. Um, it can be systems in which prayers and sermons and music that, that actually um, engages in doubt, complexity, unknowing, brings in the mystical, uh, all of that. So th 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 that's what I'm trying to, like basically what I argue is that sadly so much of the actual existing church operates at a liturgical level uh, which solidifies the symbolic and the imaginary, even if the individuals don't even believe that. Liberal churches that don't think God is just a bigger version of ourselves often still sing songs <laughs> that solidify those very things. A radical theology creates a radical lit liturgy that em embraces doubt, ambiguity, complexity, the voice of the other, that ruptures and breaks open new possibilities. And the reason why I believe that it's good to have a space when for us doing that is because otherwise we just hang out with people who are like us. Not all of us, but we tend to. We tend to only surround ourselves with the people who are the same age as us or who think broadly the same as us. We curate our Facebook page so it's only people who, you know, echo our own views and we unfriend or silence people who are different from us. Sometimes you have to do that, sometimes, you know, whatever. But what I'm saying is that if we don't have a, um, an oasis in the desert, a space in, of quietness in our lives where we encounter others, where we're sensitized to the subjectivity and the infinite value of the other, um, then we can become one-dimensional very, very quickly. So I believe that it's really good to have a space, but that might not be obviously church on a Sunday, but, but spaces in our week that we are sensitized into uh, listening to the other and into self self critique. All right, so thank you very much. I'm uh, glad you were able to join us, uh, join us, join the multiple me's uh, for this Facebook Live. Um, I'll try and check in in the next couple of days. So take care of yourselves. Bye bye.